Solar Power, an urban American success story. I'm Robert Colangelo, and this is Green Sense, where we bring you eco-innovations that are changing your world. My guest this week is Joanna Newman, Environment America. She is the Senior Director for the Campaign for 100% Renewable Energy, and we're going to discuss how U.S. cities have taken the lead when it comes to using solar power. Joanna, welcome to Green Sense. Thanks so much. It's great to be here, Robert. Well, we appreciate you being on the show all the way from Washington, D.C. <laughs> so Environment America is a D.C.-based organization. Uh, it's a network of 30 state environmental advocacy groups that promote core environmental values such as clean air to breathe, clean water to drink, and clean energy to power our lives. What about the motherhood and apple pie? I mean, who doesn't, <laughs> who isn't for that? <laughs> but that's part of the idea, right? Is that our environmental values run deep in America and they run across partisan boundaries. And so we work to bring people together, Democrats, Republicans, urban residents and rural residents around our shared environmental values. And, and we need more of that. And you do that through research, lobbying, litigation, and mobilization of public support. Anything else you'd like to add to that description? Well, I think one thing that is important to know about Environment America is that even though we have an office in Washington, D.C., we are predominantly in the states. So we really think of ourselves first and foremost as a federation of state-based organizations. And just last year, we added our very, um, our most recent new organization, Alaska Environment, where we have a, you know, director doing great work outside of the contiguous 48. Well, that helps. I appreciate that. And for those that may not be familiar with the lobbying or advocacy process, can you explain the difference between advocacy and lobbying? Sure. So lobbying is the act of meeting directly with an elected official and asking them to take a specific stance on a piece of legislation. Um, it's face-to-face, in-the-building, one-on-one conversation. Advocacy can be much broader than just lobbying. It can include mobilizing the public to support legislation. It can include um, doing media work to educate the public and raise the profile of issues. So one way to think about it is that advocacy is the whole suite of things you can do to help move public discourse and policy in America. And lobbying is just one tactic in that toolbox. For many, lobbying has a negative connotation. Why is it? Well, I think in part because powerful special interests have used the tactic of lobbying to their advantage to move public policy in favor of special interests rather than in favor of the public interest. And in America right now, you know, large corporations and special interests absolutely outnumber and outpower public interest groups in the walls of our nation's capital. Um, and so the term well-heeled lobbyist, um, you know, there's a reason it has a negative connotation because they tend to do the bidding um, of special interests rather than the public interest. And you don't think of environmental nonprofits as lobbying organizations, especially when they have to go up against big organizations like the American Petroleum Institute or some of these other uh, more well-funded uh, private sector organizations. Yep, that's right. So we often don't have the same access or influence that some of the powerful lobbying firms have who 
you know, spend all their time building relationships and hobnobbing with decision makers. But what we do have is the facts on our side, as well as the support of the American public. And so anytime that I go and lobby on Capitol Hill, um, I think of myself as the tip of the spear of all that public support. Well, that's great. Well, Environment America has a research and policy center in which I assume it generates a lot of those facts that you're talking about. How is that a separate organization and how are both of those organizations funded and are they affiliated with any party? So there are two arms to our organization. We have Environment America, which does direct advocacy and lobbying to influence specific pieces of legislation. And because we do that direct lobbying, contributions to that are not tax deductible. Um, Essentially all of the support that we get to do that lobbying work comes from individual members who make the vast majority of whom make really small, modest donations to support our work. Environment America Research and Policy Center is our research arm and our think tank and a lot of our reports that we release and the public education work that we do around issues comes through Environment America Research and Policy Center. Individuals are also able to make contributions to that entity, but because Environment America Research and Policy Center doesn't lobby directly for legislation, those contributions can be tax deductible. Um, And because contributions are tax deductible, we can also accept donations from private foundations. We have an organizational policy that um, essentially prohibits us from taking any corporate donations or any government donations. So you're an objective, credible organization that's uh, pushing fact-based uh, uh, positions. We certainly do our best. <laughs> okay. Well, you manage a campaign that promotes 100% renewable energy, which is a very laudable goal, especially with rising global energy prices. Tell us a little bit about that program, what you do and what that entails. Yep. So Environment America's campaign for 100% renewable energy essentially works to fuel a virtuous cycle to grow clean energy in America. And our theory of fueling that cycle is that we start with goal setting and that goal setting can drive action. And with action on clean energy, our experience is that it is met with success. And then we work to leverage that success to build confidence on the part of decision makers and spur greater ambition, which then fuels the next set of goals. And we apply that strategy to all aspects of clean energy, whether it's helping get offshore wind going in America or spurring rooftop solar or making it possible for people to store the clean energy that they create on their rooftops with their solar panels for later with energy storage. You know, we've seen it time and time again that when we set bold goals around renewables, it helps build the political environment for renewables to take off. And, you know, my own story is testament to this. When I first graduated from college 20 years ago, I took a job as a journey woman environmental organizer. And my very first campaign was working to get students at West Los Angeles Community College to ask the administration to have 20% of their campus powered by the sun by the year 2020. 
we won that campaign. The LA Community College District agreed to get 20% of their energy from the sun by 2020, but it didn't stop there. A few years later, the entire community college system in California committed to 100% renewable energy. Now the entire state of California has committed to 100% clean electricity by 2045, and nine other states have made similar commitments. Fully one in three Americans lives in a community today that has committed to repowering itself with clean renewable energy. Um, the hurdles aren't gone, there's definitely still work to do, but I think that the amount of progress we've seen over the past 20 years on clean energy should give us the confidence to set even bigger goals. I would think with our current situation, more than anything, economics are gonna drive the decision towards renewable energy with the war in Ukraine, inflation, rising energy prices. That made a lot of sense before, but it even makes more sense now. So let's take a little look back at the history of solar and uh, some of the fits and starts it's went, it has gone through. You know, the solar industry uh, maybe evolved somewhere around Earth Day in 1970. It was uh, in its infancy. Uh, I remember when Jimmy Carter first put solar panels on the White House in 1979. And uh, now uh, solar has uh, pretty much gone mainstream. So add some color to that history of the solar industry. Tell us what events helped to uh, precipitate it going mainstream. Was it advancements in technology, public acceptance, policy, economics, all the above? Get, you know, fill in the blanks. Yes, yes, and yes. But I will say, first and foremost, the biggest thing that has brought solar to scale is policy. And I want to tell you the story and the listeners the story of the Million Solar Roofs Initiative in California, because more than any single policy, the Million Solar Roofs Initiative brought solar from a cottage industry to a world-class player. So in California, you are dealing with the fifth largest economy on the planet and a political landscape that lends itself to being on the blazing edge of environmental policy, right? California doesn't wanna play second fiddle to anyone. And so a number of years ago, our advocate in California, a woman named Bernadette Del Chiaro, who now runs the California Solar and Storage um, Association, she, basically set out to create a campaign that was gonna bring solar into the mainstream. And we called it the Million Solar Roofs Initiative. So this initiative basically set a goal of over the course of 10 years, let's get solar on a million solar roofs across California. And it put in place the funding to make that happen. Um, the idea was good, but the organizing was even better. So Bernadette, went all over California, organizing press conferences. Governor Schwarzenegger was the governor at the time. And we essentially rolled out a red carpet for Arnold Schwarzenegger to create the political space for him to be what we called the solar nader. So we ran newspaper ads saying, Governor Schwarzenegger, become the solar nader. And he saw the opportunity. He saw that solar was popular. 
He saw the climate science and knew that he wanted to be on the right side of history. And he became a champion for the Million Solar Roofs Initiative. That was back in 2008. Fast forward to 2019 and Bernadette and our advocate, Dan Jacobson, joined Governor Schwarzenegger at a high school in California to celebrate reaching the Million Solar Roofs Initiative. And sure enough, it did what it was supposed to do. It brought solar from the fringe into the mainstream, not just in California, but it helped propel that growth all over the country. Um, and really more than any other single policy, it was the Million Solar Roofs Initiative that helped drive solar in America. What about ec economics, costs? The price of the technology has come down a lot since the 70s. Absolutely. So with broader adoption, you get economies of scale throughout the industry and costs come down. And in our most recent Renewables on the Rise report, um, which is an annual report that Environment America has put out for most of the past decade, we um, quantify that drop in cost. And just to give a sense, the median new residential solar panel installed in 2019 not only was it 37% more efficient than the one installed in 2010, but the costs have plummeted. So for a standard rooftop solar PV system, the costs fell 71% between 2010 and 2018, and the cost of utility scale solar systems fell by more than 80%. Um, that was, those falling prices have made it so that rooftop solar is just in reach of more and more people. And especially when you couple it with the clean energy tax credits that exist at the federal level and at many um, state levels, you know, solar is now one of the cheapest energy sources that people can tap into. Right. And with rising utility costs, it's at par or less. So let's get into the Environment America Research and Polity Center recently published report, Shining Cities 2022, the top U.S. cities for solar energy. It talks about the role cities have played in America's solar energy revolution. And the report states that the amount of solar power installed in just nine U.S. cities exceeds the amount installed in the entire United States 10 years ago. That, that's a phenomenal number. Uh, so tell us uh, about a few of those cities and why they're leaders in solar energy. Yep. So I'll start with Honolulu, which is the shining star of the solar superstars we profiled in the report. Um, Honolulu ranks first in the country for the amount of solar that that city has installed per capita. Um, and part of this success of Honolulu is that the state, as well as the city, has been committed to clean renewable energy for a long time. Um, the state of Hawaii was the very first state to commit to repowering itself with clean renewable energy sources. That's in part because there's no oil or gas to be drilled for or fracked for, and so they have to import it from far away, whereas it's an abundantly sunny place. Um, so that's one shining superstar that I think is worth highlighting. Um, the other, you know, there are a number of cities that you could 
highlight San Antonio, Texas comes to mind. It ranks sixth in the country for solar per capita. I think San Antonio is an important case study because it shows that um, it's not just democratic blue state strongholds that have seen a growth in solar energy. Um, you know, Texas is one of the it's, it's a Republican state, and yet San Antonio ranks th- sixth in the country for the amount of solar installed per capita. And just um, last month, they signed a contract to bring an additional 300 megawatts of solar online in that city. So, you know, just continuing to see leadership on the part of San Antonio. Well, uh, Honolulu is a no-brainer. Uh, I've done some work with the state out there on renewables and uh, brownfield issues. And when I was out there, uh, power was at 35 to 40 cents a kilowatt hour. And in the state of Hawaii, it should be a living, working lab for renewable energy. From electric cars to, as you said, they, they use bunker fuel oil to run their power plants, heavily polluted one of the worst congested cities in the world, you know, why not have electric cars? So that's a, that's a wonderful example. In San Antonio, what was the driver? Was it the mayor? Was it uh, economics? What, what drove them to take the lead here? You know, I don't know the specifics of what drove San Antonio to do this. Um, our state director, Luke Metzger, could potentially come on a show in a future date and dig into the politics there a little bit more. That'd be well, that's fair. Let's let's dig into another thing that the report mentions, and that's solar stars. Uh, how does a city get that designation? So a city gets the designation solar star if it gets more than 50 watts of solar per person. That's uh, pretty significant. Uh, uh, and how many cities have gotten that designation? So the number has grown from eight when we released the very first edition of this report in 2014, up to 34 cities that rank as solar stars in this most recent report. Yeah, that's impressive growth. Um, well, another bold statement of the report is that solar power can meet our needs anywhere. Now, we talked about Honolulu, very sunny, San Antonio, sunny. And so most people think solar only works in very sunny areas. Why is that bold statement true? That bold statement is true because even in the Pacific Northwest, where it's rainy a lot of the time, or in the Northeast, where it's snowy a lot of the time, solar can play a huge role in meeting energy needs. Um, you know, if you look at the superstars in the report, Burlington, Vermont ranks in the top 10. Um, you don't think of Vermont as a particularly sunny place, but solar is playing a huge role in that city's ability to meet its energy needs. And why is that? Is that technological that the PV uh, uh, panels have gotten much better? Uh, is it uh, battery storage? What, what is it that caused it to work in these less sunny environments? Well, the sun shines everywhere. <laughs> so, um, you know, even in Alaska, solar energy is playing a role for communities to meet their energy needs. And granted, it's, you know, as you get into the Northern Hemisphere, you have to factor in seasonal fluctuation. Um, but if you get the policies right, you know, you produce a little bit more solar in the summer and then you produce a little bit less in the winter. And over the course of the year, you can more than meet your energy needs with solar. 
Well, there's a saying out there that power is never given, it's taken. And when any uh, new energy source comes in, it's taking uh, money away from very large, powerful groups. So what special interest groups oppose solar energy? Well, the fossil fuel industry is a longtime opponent of anything that threatens the fuel sources that they have built their business on. Um, some of those players are starting to see that renewable energy is the future, um, but there's still a long way to go. The Let me ask you a question. Industry, uh, BP used to be beyond petroleum. At one time, they were looking heavily at renewable energy. What, what happened? I can't remember the exact details on BP. I know they... Yeah, they called themselves Beyond Petroleum. I believe they've made some investments in solar, but you know they continue to buy leases for oil and gas when it's very clear from the climate science that we need to stop burning fossil fuels. And the sooner we do that, the better it'll be in terms of reducing the warming that is threatening life on this earth. Um, the other special interest that I think is worth mentioning is the utility industries. So- Theoretically, utility companies shouldn't have a dog in the race in terms of where the energy comes from, right? It's their job to make sure there's enough energy and to get it out to people's homes. But unfortunately, a lot of utility companies feel threatened by the growth of distributed generation like rooftop solar. Um, and they're fighting tooth and nail that to roll back the policies or ban places. Um, I'm sorry, to, the utility companies are fighting tooth and nail against the policies that allow rooftop solar in particular to grow. Um, in some places they have begrudgingly accepted that renewables will be part of the grid, but they want that to be utility scale solar that they own and control rather than rooftop solar that everybody yeah, and they like you and me have. And they've even imposed uh, fees on distribution for that power uh, to uh, uh, not motivate people to do that. But on the other hand, Warren Buffett made a huge investment in one of the largest commercial solar power plants out West. So you're seeing both sides of that and, and hopefully this will start to change. So nothing is all good or all bad out there. So let's talk about some of the solutions to the cons associated with solar energy. I'll read a con, you tell me the solution. I'll do my the best. First, the first is high upfront costs. So you, the solution to the high upfront costs is to think about the financing over the life of the system. Solar panels last 25 to 30 years. And in a lot of states, there are financing mechanisms in place that allow people to distribute that upfront cost over the life of the system. Um, on average, Solar systems in the U.S. take seven to eight years to pay off. And so for the remainder of that systems, it's all savings. Um, but you need to, you know, if you don't have the upfront capital to buy your system, you need to look into the financing mechanisms to make it possible. And some municipalities like Berkeley, California, have come up with very creative programs to help uh, homeowners finance those. So, uh, uh, yeah, there is a solution. Solar doesn't work at night. That's a great question. So it's true. The sun doesn't shine 24-7. Um, but it all depends on what you're trying to do. So 
offshore wind, for example, is strongest at night. And so it's a perfect complement to solar. The other thing that solar is really good at is producing power when we most need it. So solar tends to be strongest at the hottest parts of the day when energy use is at its peak. And it's that it's those periods of peak demand that often drive electricity prices to be highest. And so having lots of solar can actually reduce costs and reduce strain on the system overall um, during those periods of peak demand. That was a good answer. And another answer is battery storage, but that's also a con. It's a high cost of battery storage. So what's the solution to that? (laughs) Well, tax credits for battery storage certainly help. And then the same financing mechanisms that can be applied to solar can also be applied to battery storage. One of the advantages about renewables is that they're uh, homegrown and we don't have to rely on foreign sources to produce energy. One of the cons of solar panels are that 80% are manufactured in Asia. So we're now reliant upon a foreign source. What's the, the solution to that? You know, it's very interesting. I know the solution. Solar, <laughs> solar panels were invented in the United States. Right. And there's no reason why we need to cede our clean energy manufacturing to other parts of the world. We just have to commit to building up America's industrial base and building our homegrown clean energy technology here. Yes, I agree with that one. And then the last one, uh, manufacturing and disposal of solar panels can have an impact on the environment. There's no doubt that every single energy source that we have has some environmental footprint. That's part of why Environment America first and foremost advocates for the cleanest energy, which is energy efficiency and conservation. Far and away, the cheapest and fastest way to meet our energy needs is to cut our energy waste and to use the energy that we do have more wisely. After that, if you start doing environmental analyses, there is no doubt that clean, renewable fuel sources like the sun and the wind have less of an environmental footprint than fossil fuels, which spew pollution and warm our planet the mining causes problems and the disposal of the ash and the waste causes problems. So again, you know, even solar panels have an environmental footprint, but it is much smaller than that of fossil fuels. Well, I appreciate uh, you answering those on the, on the the cuff there uh, with no planning and uh, rehearsing. So you did good. Uh, Since Jimmy Carter uh, first put solar panels on the roof of the White House, there's been a growing group of Americans who want to see the solar industry succeed. And it's nice to see cities uh, take the lead on the solar wars. You know, a lot of activities, I think, on the environment really have been uh, generated through mayors and at that city level. So in your opinion, what's the number one most important thing that needs to happen to continue to grow the solar industry? I only get to choose one. Only one. (laughs) Um, We need Congress to extend the clean energy tax credits that currently make it so that if a homeowner or a small business decides to install solar, roughly 30% of those costs can be written off on their taxes. That has a huge impact. And 
really what needs to happen is Congress needs to extend those tax credits for solar and wind and other clean energy technology like battery storage over the course of the next decade to give the industry the assurance that they can continue to grow and invest and that customers will be there. Yeah, and those tax credits are complicated because if you don't know they're in place, a lot of these projects take a long time to develop, so they have to have that runway to see them there. Joanna, I really enjoyed speaking with you. It was really a great pleasure. Uh, thanks for being on GreenSense. Really a pleasure to talk with you. Thank you. That's Joanna Newman, Senior Director, Campaign for 100% Renewable Energy with Environment America, talking about solar stars, cities that are taking the lead in the use of solar power. GreenSense is an independent radio show that relies on the generous financial support of patrons like you to produce a high quality audio broadcast that promotes innovators with sustainable solutions to solve our world's most pressing environmental issues. If you're interested in being a patron, call me at 312-493-1470 or visit the greensensefarm.com website, download the patron form. I'm Robert Colangelo and thank you for listening to GreenSense and catch the GreenSense Minute every Thursday and Saturday on 105.9 WBBM Chicago.